Hey, good afternoon. This is Rob, your host of the podcast, One Dive at a Time, the official podcast of Neptune Warrior. I'm the founder and director of Neptune Warrior, also known as the Scuba Monk or Scuba Monk Rob. Hey, coming into you from Olympia, Washington right now, a little bit of a story behind that. All right, so originally this was supposed to be a a dive trip to Hood's Port. Hood's Port is, or Hood Canal, is a fjord that was carved out by a glacier, I don't know, about 70 billion years ago or something. And it has created this amazing dive area. It's one of my favorite places to go. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I've been having some ear issues. All right, so we decided that we'd go ahead and make the trip. And go hang out with some friends of ours, really, really good friends, Jonesy, Lacey, and, and Mark. And and just kind of hang out. Now, originally, I was going to bring Rosarita, my Jeep, that has got a, it's all outfitted for diving. It's got a canopy. It's got a tent. It's got a shower. It's got all the things that, you know, you need for backcountry diving, even though we were going to be in an RV park. Well, when we made the decision that I wasn't going to dive, my dive buddy was not going to dive, and I started looking at what fuel prices were going to cost, it was cheaper to rent a car and stay in cabins. Now, we knew that we only had two nights in the cabins, and the third night we would have to wait, you know, be on a wait list or find some other, other property to stay on. And we wound up having to move from one room to another. I got to tell you, the folks at Glen Air have been phenomenal to work with. They have really, really tried to, to accommodate us. And that's where our friends are staying. So we we stayed, you know, one night in a cabin, moved to another cabin the next night. And then the third night, just nothing opened up. There was nothing open in Hoodsport. So it is a recreation town in the peak of summer. No, you're not going to find rooms. Closest place we could find a room was about an hour drive over to Olympia, Washington, and that's where we're staying at now. And it's all good. I am really having to work with a change of mindset. I'm a diver. When I go on a dive trip, I want to dive. Right now, I can't because my ear is all jacked up, or something in my ENT, ear, nose, throat area, is all jacked up, and haven't really figured it out yet. And it, if you're not a diver, Imagine it like this. At least put it into terms of being a downhill skier. And if you go on a ski trip or you go to a ski resort, you don't want to be sitting around not skiing. And that's what I'm facing with right now. And it is it is emotionally taxing to watch my fellow divers get out there and go have a good time. And I've had to do that a couple of times before. But I'm trying to find workarounds on it. I'm trying to throw myself into some Neptune work do some research and ju- and then just relax and just be get you know read some books and things like that but having to move between rooms and you know in this case moving an hour away and all like that it's just 
it's you don't really have a place to to settle in for a couple of days because every day you're moving. You know, you're on a you're on a different uh, heading to a different cabin, or in this case, heading to a different hotel, and so it's caused caused a little bit of angst. And I'm really really trying to understand that. Hey, I've been trying to to knock out some podcasts while on this trip, and you may hear some podcasts that get posted that are very very raw, no bumper music. No outro music, anything like that. It may just be me turning on the recorder. I did some recordings with the H1N. Looking at that minimalist mindset, so there may be a couple, and I'm not sure yet, but there may be a couple episodes where I turn it on, do an intro, and then I just start talking. And that that's maybe the format. I haven't decided, like I said, I've, I've recorded a couple episodes but there's a familiarity and there's a comfort level that I have when I'm putting that content out. I also have to look at two or three other things through, obviously I I wanted to have some quality to it, but I made a vow that when I started this podcast that two things, one is I was not going to have sponsors and the second was wasn't going to put a lot of time into production. I have a lot of other things that I have to do right now. And really focusing on the production value is not on a priority list. And I have some very, maybe not selfish, but personal reasons of why I'm doing the podcast. One is because I am going to take this and put it into you know, other presentations and other media that I'm doing because I have struggled with that aspect of what I'm trying to do with the work that we're doing in Neptune. I've really, really struggled with that. So this was a way that I could focus my thoughts, get them out there, and then put them into another force, uh, uh, another type of media at some other point. The other one was I, you know, I've, I'm at a point where there are people listening and I've said before on the on the show that I don't go check stats. I don't see who's listening. I don't see how many people were you know are listening. I don't know what countries or states that we're in. I honestly don't care. I've never looked at the stats, and where I sit today, I never will look at the stats. I don't want to say never will, but I have no interest today looking at the stats. At the same time, I've got people reaching out to me saying, "Hey, I heard this on the podcast. Hey, I've you know I saw this or." You know, I listen to your podcast and I live close by. I'd like to see if I can get involved. I've had other coaches and counselors and even a couple of uh, psychologists reach out. Hey, would like to partner with you. Like to learn more. And so I, so I know people are listening, and, and you know, and that's a that's a really good thing. So I have to try to still keep that quality level. So turning on a handheld recorder and then posting that as my podcast I'm a little a little shy about it, but then again maybe it just shows the, the the raw essence of it so you're gonna you may hear some podcast about you know traveling as a minimalist and you know collecting trinkets and things like that as a minimalist I've done a couple of those I've, I've done a few things on I've done a few things on different anxiety order uh, disorders. I've done a few things on acceptance. 
And there again, it's just raw recordings. I may throw those in there. And then again, who knows? I may, maybe I'll just take the, the raw recordings and, and throw them into a, a mix down. All right. Hey, talking about anxiety, I want to share with you a couple of emails that I've gotten recently. And these are folks that we have gotten into diving or we're getting in, we're getting into diving and following what we're doing in Neptune as far as breathe. And then one of them is actually going to get certified. I've recently certified some folks that were in the breathe program. And that is, you know, that's never a goal. If someone comes in to get relaxation and recenter themselves underwater and go through that program, certification has never been a priority for that. And I get rebuffed a little bit because training agencies want you to certify divers. They want to see the numbers of you certifying divers. And we've even looked at doing a, a breathe, you know, certification. That way the dive agencies are still getting the recognition and, and they're seeing us, you know, actually performing. And having that statistic really is not huge on my list. So I need to, I need to rethink, think that, but it is, it is rewarding when someone decides that they want to move from the doing pool work and somatic breathing and yoga and really finding themselves. And they're like, Hey, here is this new sport that I can take up. That is part of what I'm already doing. So I'm going to, I'm going to read you a couple of emails. And what we're going to talk about today is Understanding social anxiety. This is something that I have struggled with really hard. And and I don't think I'm by any means over it. I think I'm dealing with it. I think I'm managing that anxiety. And that's that's the best that I can do. I know that I'm a much different person than I am five, than five or six years ago. I've overcome a lot of that. And I know I'm a much better person than I was, say, uh, 10 or 12 years ago. And that has been through a lot of work, a lot of coaching, a lot of encouragement from friends, and really just really just finding myself. Diving has been a big part of that. And that's why when I'm really worried now that I have got this injury is what happens if next week when I go into the ENT and the doc says, hey, Rob, your diving career is over. Because my entire identity has been wrapped up in diving. That's a personal confession I'll make to you right now. My identity, my ego, my status, I have allowed diving to really take the place of other things of where I used to find my identity. So that that's something I'm... Now, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. And if it did happen... There, I will still find ways to be involved in diving. I've already started looking at other things I can be doing that keeps me involved with helping to heal heroes one dive at a time. So I'm not totally out of the game, but that's something I have to think about. And, and by the way, that's one of the other podcasts was that whole uncertainty thing. I did a podcast on certain, on uncertainty. It's in a very raw format. We'll see what we do with that. But Hey, let me get to these emails. The first one is from Casey. Now, by the way, uh, Casey is one of my divers that originally I was coaching on presenting. I do a whole workshop on presenting 
or, or presentation skills for people who are either really, really need some coaching on it or they've got anxiety. And I focus a lot on the managing anxiety part. So it was while I was doing that coaching that we got Casey involved in, in diving. And then we started looking at it from different aspects. But let me, let me read a couple of emails. The first one's from Casey. I was 25 when I left the service and I went to school on my GI Bill. I was having a few issues, so I went to the university counseling service. I'd already started my courses and had been involved with them for seven months. And I was enjoying being out of the military and on my own for the first time. It took some time to adjust, and I had a good group of friends. I'd always been a good student, and had in the military had been a good troop. I tried to do everything as well as I could. I was enjoying some aspects of my course, but was struggling in my group seminars. It was very difficult to co- contribute to the group, and I found it excruciating, excruciating to give presentations even after your coaching. My anxiety got so bad that I avoided some of my seminars to the extent I might not have uh, been able to progress My therapist asked me to describe a recent time when I felt anxious and I described a recent seminar. It was my turn to present something to the group. And even though I had been working with you and spending a lot of time preparing for exactly what I was going to say, it failed. While I was speaking, I felt like I was stumbling over my words. I thought I looked like a fool because I was coming across as nervous and thought my peers would think I was incompetent. I felt very anxious, hot, sweaty, and shaky. I was worried that other people would hear my voice shaking. So I spoke very quickly to get my presentation over with and quietly to hide my shaking voice. I avoided eye contact and kept my eyes fixed on my presentation because I was so self-conscious. After the presentation, I made a swift exit and spent the rest of the day berating myself on how badly I did. So in a, in a follow-up email when I, or in a follow-up telephone call, uh, we, talked, we talked about her presentation. And, we talked, and the first thing that she brought up was that, you know, she read off the slides and all the exercises that we did just ex- imploded on her. And what we quickly found out, it wasn't a anxiety over presenting because in all of our coaching pre- presentations, she did phenomenal. After we started drilling down into it, came to find out that Casey had the same issues when she was around her group seminars and just asked to participate or answer questions. And not, it wasn't just solely on pre- presenting. Now, by the way, you know, you know, glossophobia is is where you are. You know, where you, where you have a fear of presenting, a lot of people have it. And Casey's was more than just that anxiety of presenting. It was around uh, around different social groups. Another one is TJ. I'm hoping to get into your dive program. I'm 40 years old and thought this might, uh, thought this would be the answer. I never went to combat, but I have a, but I have multiple deployments in support of combat operations. I was in, I was in intelligence and was responsible for debriefing soldiers who came back from combat operations. I first went to see a psychologist when I was 33 after my doc referred me for long-standing depression and anxiety. My therapist asked me to, to describe a recent time when I felt anxious 
and I told him about a recent occasion when my sister and brother-in-law invited me to a family barbecue. I arrived early, and in the back of my mind, had planned to use the excuse that I had to leave early for another appointment. During the party, I was aware how hot I felt, and I was afraid of appearing anxious and worried, and that other people would think I was weird because I was blushing. There was a number of moments where I felt extremely self-conscious and was convinced I was blushing red in my face. During the party, I volunteered to get drinks for people and clean up, both as ways to avoid having to talk to people. When I couldn't avoid talking to people, I tried to make sure I was standing in the shade so that I could stay cool and avoid blushing. I felt myself getting hot or if I, if I felt myself getting hot, I would try to turn my face or cover it with my hand. My social anxiety meant that I had, uh, my social anxiety means that I have no close friends and had never had a relationship. I, I work in construction, but I keep to myself and avoid socializing with my workmates. I'm lonely, depressed, and feel like life has passed me by. One of the things that we've been able to do with TJ is out on the dive site is to start working that anxiety and really finding that, uh, that support group. One of the things I really try to do, you know, we have obviously because we have people from different service branches, different service branches pick on each other. And we try to be very careful that that doesn't happen too much. That is, that it's not that, if someone is in the Marine Corps, we're not on them about crayons all the time. If someone's in the Air Force, we're not on to them about eating ice cream all the time and watching cable. If someone's in the Army, we're not on to them. You know, whatever it happens to be, right? We have to be very careful that when somebody leaves a dive site or somebody leaves an event, that they don't feel like they don't matter. It's common to feel a little bit of anxiety around other people from time to time. But if the anxiety is more severe than regular, or if it's more severe than just what we might consider to be shyness, and it begins to interfere with that ability to live life, there's a good chance that you could be suffering from social anxiety. And it happens to be one of the most common anxiety disorders. Approximately two to seven people out of every 100 experience social anxiety disorder every single year. But the good news is that by going through effective counseling or effective coaching, it's, a, it's been proven that you can be treated and even recover or at least manage the anxiety. So this is something that I'm very familiar with because I've had those times where I feel self-conscious and I feel anxious in social situations where I might be exposed to scrutiny by other people. I understand the fear that I might behave in a way that would be judged negatively by other people. And for me, it could be sitting back and not engaging with other people. 
In fact, I've got a really good friend of mine that that uh, has known me for a very long time, like 15, 17 years, and only recently shared with me, you know, when I used to see you out of places, and we weren't really friends at that point. We were acquaintances. I'd say, you know, you were always the guy in the hoodie. You know, you're the guy who's sitting back and just kind of watching everybody. And and I admit that that was me. I'm always the guy who who and even still, I will sit back and I'll be very very quiet. And people think that I might be shy, or people might think I'm disengaged, or that I'm just you know pondering. I've even been told I was judging other people, right? And the thing is, I'm sitting back because I'm I'm almost afraid of how I'm going to be judged, so I don't do anything at all, which then I still get judged, right? But I understand that, and I avoid. You know, I've, I've been known to avoid social situations uh, or even having to endure them with a lot of difficulty. And this happened a few nights ago, hanging out with people I know, not very, very well, but I mean, really good acquaintances. But when I'm done, I'm done. I'm exhausted. It's almost like as if you were on a hike and you're walking uphill and you think that you made it to the summit just to turn the corner to find out that there's another 45-degree gray that you have to walk up for several hundred yards. And it is exhausting. And then when you, you know, you, maybe you get through it. And, and, I mean, I can put on the bright face. People have no idea that that's going on. But, man, when I'm done, I am done. I've got to have silence. I've got to be quiet. You know, other things to relate social anxiety you might be a person who is worrying what other people think of you. Uh, the, there's uh, social situations that bother you almost always, and they, you know, you know or, or bother you, and they always provoke fear. They always provoke anxiety, and maybe even your anxiety is out of proportion to the actual dangers that are posed by the situation. You know, that's not, you know, you know, going into a grocery store is you know, that it feels just overwhelming or having to stand in front of a group and present is just overwhelming. That's all part of social anxiety. So there's, there's four things that we can take a look at. And it comes down to how you might think, how you might feel, how you might act, and then what you might pay attention to. And I'm taking this from both personal experience as well as when I talk to some of my divers that deal with social anxiety. So things that you might think about. You might be worried about what other people think of you. You might worry that other people will judge you. You worry that other people will notice that you're anxious or will notice your symptoms of anxiety. One of the things that I'm always looking for on the dive site, obviously, is anxiousness about the dive. But I'm also trying to clue in on who's just anxious about be, being around other people and how do we make them more, more comfortable? And how do we have, maybe even later on, have those conversations? I have divers in my breathe program that don't come out to the regular scuba situations or get scuba certified because they expect the worst from those social situations. You know, they see our guys with the, you know, guys and gals with the jackets on, the patches and all that kind of stuff. Man, they don't want anything to do with that. Because they feel that they might be in a situation where they have to start a conversation. 
I mean, even like on the phone or a text, they get anxious, right? They're afraid that someone will notice that they're anxious. They're afraid that they'll think, you know, someone will think that they're weird because maybe they're blushing or maybe they're making a mess of the situation. I've got a diver who, who has tried to get back into dating and because her social anxiety is so high, she feels like she blunders every conversation. Beautiful young lady, has a lot to offer, very intelligent. But man, when it comes to that social situation, she falls apart. She feels like she can't get the words out to say the right things and oftentimes feels like she says the wrong things. When all it is is people just want to be around her. She has a sweet personality, sweet disposition, but the social anxiety of that date is so overwhelming that she's expecting the worst from that situation. So what are some ways that someone who has social anxiety, what what is it that they might feel? Well, it could be fear or discomfort when they're interacting with other people or even just being around other people. There's really not any interaction, just being in rooms with other people. There could be physical symptoms. It could be blushing. It could be fast, uh, you know, an accelerated heartbeat, uh, trembling, sweating, vomiting, nausea, dizziness, lightheadedness. I know for me, it's like the walls, you know, used to would close in on me. I would get lightheaded and I would feel like I was just going to, you know, that I was going to throw up. It was just, it was just so overwhelming. So with social anxiety, how might someone act? Well, they could avoid situations where they are in the center of attention. I've had master scuba diver candidates that have to give presentations or dive master candidates that have to give presentations. And man, having that center focus on them. So I have to step back, kind of figure out a way to coach, coach them with that, encourage them on that maybe start to desensitize them and desensitization might be you know do your presentation with me now let's do your presentation with three other people that you know then let's do a presentation with three people you know three people that you don't know and we just can't kind of keep working into that but the what they you know what they want to do is they want to avoid those situations altogether because they don't want to embarrass themselves they don't want to, uh, you know, they don't want to speak in front of people they don't know. They're afraid they might say the wrong thing. There's also safety behaviors, and I'm going to do another podcast on this. In fact, I've got a raw podcast that I did on the shoreline at Hood Canal that I may or may not post. We may go back in and, and redo that one, but it's about safety behaviors. So they can do things to control how they come across to other people. I've got someone that will sit back and they prepare what they might say by speaking quietly to themselves. They'll, they'll walk away and prepare for a social interaction, not for a presentation, but just how that they might approach somebody. They kind of get that elevator speech down, right? They might try to do things to not be noticed, like what TJ did. Gets drinks for other people, helps to clean up, stays stays out of the way. They can be speaking quietly. After the social situation, they might do an after-action report on themselves, that post-mortem, and analyze their performance. But they focus on 
the flaws. They don't focus on, and again, in coaching situations, this is where I have to work with my divers. Hey, what did you do well? And when they immediately start going to, well, uh, my face got flushed or I, I jumbled my words. No, 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 no. Let's back up a little bit. What did you do well? And it's processing the experience very much like what we, when we're processing a dive or we, you know, we're processing an exercise we might do and breathe. So what happened? How did you feel? What did you do well? All right, so now if you needed to improve, what would you do different? And then coming back and focusing on, on what they did well. When I, oftentimes when I do a feedback session like that, I'll talk to them about, about the purpose. If, I'm, if I am setting someone up in a scenario where they need to be able to present and they do have anxiety or they need to talk to someone and they have that anxiety, we'll go through a process of, okay, so the purpose of this was that you needed to talk to three people on the dive site today. And you just need to find out how their dive was, how deep they went, how long they stayed. That's the only three things. So that was the purpose. As the observer, I noticed that you were able to walk up. You had a conversation. A few times you looked down at your feet, but you looked back up and made eye contact with them. And the impact is that you have now improved your presentation ability. Just a quick feedback session like that. So when someone has that social anxiety, the things that they're going to pay attention to, is any negative impression that they have about themselves, that self-image, that self-esteem, they are going to be focused. They're going to be locked in on that. They're going to be paying attention to how they come across to other people. And they're going to be focused on feelings of self-consciousness and self-awareness. They are looking at themselves. Instead of, instead of focusing on the content, they tend to focus on themselves and that is where part of the spiral will begin so maybe you're someone who has social anxiety but maybe you don't know it maybe you had that fear or maybe you thought maybe I could have it so things that you need to look at is you know do you avoid situations where you might be the center of attention some of us might say nah never happens some of us will say often some might say sometimes it happens we could also look at the fear of embarrassment that causes a person to avoid doing things or speaking to people. Maybe when you're with other people, you worry about being embarrassed or looking stupid or doing something that would completely humiliate yourself. Or maybe you don't. Ask yourself if you're a person that feels like you have to endure a social situation and it makes you anxious just doing that or what about if you have to speak in front of a group if on any of those if you answer to yourself hey yeah that's me I often do that and you find that those fears cause hindrance in your life you might be suffering from social anxiety and so this is where it would be good to talk to a counselor or talk to a coach. If we look at the things that causes social anxiety, evolution, okay? So just like, you know, just like bears, wolves, 
monkeys, you know, any other mammals, we've all evolved to care about our place within a social group. In the distant past, when we made itty-bitty fires in great big caves, being kicked out of the pack or being kicked out of the tribe, you know, it can mean death. And there's an extent that we're still programmed or hardwired to worry about being excluded or rejected. This is a built-in concern that all of us are likely to feel a bit socially anxious on occasion. If you feel anxiety in social situations, you just might find it's helpful to remind yourself that there's nothing wrong with you. You're okay. And it's just a natural instinct to care about what other, others think. Personality. You know, from a very early age, as kids, we vary from being outgoing and adventurous to shy and timid. And kids and even adults have personalities that make them likely to approach or avoid. If you're someone who naturally is more withdrawn or cautious or restrained, you're more likely to develop social anxiety disorder. If you look at the way that people have treated you, people with social anxiety have sometimes suffered difficult experiences and that's at the hands of others. You know, growing up, I had a, I had a, a quote-unquote friend that used to bully me. He used to beat the hell out of me. He used to hold me underwater. He used to do all kinds of, of cruel things. And so if you've been treated badly, those experiences, those experiences of, of being bullied, of being teased, of being ridiculed, humiliation, maybe even trauma or abuse, those leave strong memories and mental images of, humili of humiliating things that were done to you. Beliefs and assumptions, this is another area. The things that you believe about yourself, the assumptions that you have about yourself, how others, how you believe others see you, and how you think that you behave in public. All of us have got these internal rules about how we think we need to behave and how we think uh, or how we believe others expect us to act. And if you find that you've got beliefs or assumptions that other people are judging you or people are critical, that can put you on edge and it makes you more anxious. I have this happen with divers who have not a lot of time on the clock as far as dive experience. Like they haven't been diving, you know, 15, 20 years, but they've racked up a couple of hundred dives and they, they have more experience than that person who's been diving for five or 10 years or maybe the types of dives that they've done. And they get around someone who has done a lot of years in diving and has done maybe a lot of the different types of, you know, kind of the signature types of dives, wreck dives and, and that kind of stuff, right? And they can get, you know, they can feel on edge because of those other people. And even though they have probably equal or even more experience, but there's something about being around that other diver that, that puts them on edge. 
having an appearance or a condition that draws attention, and we face this with a lot of our vets who have been wounded or even injured after their military service. So I, I, wanna, I do want to make sure that I say that not everybody who has physical differences develops social anxiety. I've got a really good friend of mine who lost both an arm and a leg. This is the most outgoing guy I've ever met in my life. Everybody loves him. He's got, as far as I can tell, there is no social anxiety in him at all. He's a very outgoing guy. He's a natural leader. People are drawn to his personality. With that said, if you've had negative reactions about you, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a physical injury. It doesn't have to be a combat-related injury. It could be about your height. It could be about your weight. So I had somebody that was very, very important in my life and was always conscious about their weight. And it pulled them down in many different areas, especially being social around others. So what can trigger social anxiety? So I'm going to start wrapping up with this, uh, start wrapping up this podcast with this, but I'm going to talk, I do want to talk about it. But social anxiety is, it's, it's worse in situations where you feel, where, uh, where you're going to fear. Social, uh, social anxiety is going to be where, um, it's, it's much worse in situations where you are going to fear that you're being judged or you're being evaluated by other people. And those situations, they can either be in person, they can be, you know, we're in the Zoom age now, right? So it could be on Zoom, it could be on a telephone call, it could be a place where you're at the center of attention. And I've got people who've talked about just answering the phone. They're anxious about answering the phone. They're being at a party where there's people that they don't know, or maybe the party is for them. They're being asked to perform. They are asking to uh, do a presentation or maybe walk up and ask for help from, you know, a hotel clerk or a shop assistant. Maybe posting comments online. You know, you'll see people take, uh, you know, they'll take, they'll take Facebook breaks because of, of reactions that they're getting that are negative reactions and they were anxious in the first place. If they have to speak to someone of the opposite sex. I struggled with that and I can, you know, it's because, you know, I know that when I was in high school, I was late to develop. I was a skinny kid, bad acne, didn't have a clue. And speaking to someone of the opposite sex was always, always a challenge. I had to go get coaching for it. So after, after my divorce, I actually went out and got coaching on how to speak to people of the opposite sex had a coach that I would meet with. We would go, you know, out to different places where I would meet people of the opposite sex. I wasn't supposed to get a phone number. I wasn't supposed to get a date. None of that. I was just supposed to talk to someone of the opposite sex. And the coaching worked. And it helped to really help that part of my anxiety. Uh, again, giving a speech might be one of those things, talking to people at, at social events. But, you know, we have to find ways that we stop the social anxiety. And make sure that it doesn't keep going. And we know through research that things like cognitive behavior therapy, uh, coaching, 
all of that works to help negate or actually manage social anxiety. Things that I have coached and would coach people on is helping someone with their self-image, helping someone with their beliefs and assumptions. And this is where diving is fantastic for this because you can associate with a group of people. And first of all, if you're coming to Neptune, people love you. All right. I mean, we take care of our own. We look out for our own. But in the diving community in general, most, not all, but it can help you build that self-image and be accepted within a group and change your beliefs and assumptions about yourself. We can focus on things like negative automatic thoughts, working on safety behaviors and avoidance, and then anticipate anxiety and how to, how to manage that anxiety as it starts to come up. Your self-impression, your self-image, your beliefs, your negative automatic thoughts, your avoidance and safety behaviors, and your self-consciousness and self-focused attention. All of these play in tune with managing social anxiety. Improving the impression that you have of yourself. We all have an impression in our minds of what kind of person we are and how we come across to others. That's our self-image. Keep in mind, you don't look dumb. You're not boring. You're not weird. You're not awkward. Other people don't think that you're disgusting or will want to automatically reject you. You have to change your beliefs and your assumptions about who you are. Get Get rid of those negative automatic thoughts and images. Be you. You're a beautiful person. And remember, as long as you've got air, you're all right.